What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, I'll be interviewing Britt Frank. Britt Frank is a nationally recognized neuropsychotherapist and trauma therapist. She's also the author of the hit book, The Science of Stuck, which was named the top creativity book of 2022. She holds degrees from Duke University and the University of Kansas, where she's currently a professor. Britt decodes the brain to understand motivation, good and bad habits, how micro yeses can change your life, and ultimately what makes us stuck. Our conversation is a wide-ranging one. We dive deep into the dark side of addiction and depression, and we move on to the tools to help optimize your life no matter what your current state of mind is. Britt has many viewpoints that left me pleasantly surprised. As she says in her book, I quote, Anxiety doesn't keep you stuck. Anxiety is a map that leads you out of stuck. Before I introduce Britt, I'd like to remind everyone to please subscribe to this show wherever you're tuning in or if you're watching on YouTube and leave us a review. It helps more than I can say. And if you like my content regarding wealth and achieving wealth as a state of well-being, I'd encourage you to sign up for my free newsletter, Weekly Wealthy Wisdoms at www.briancaderna.com and join the tens of thousands of subscribers who are already enjoying my three-minute kickstart to the week. Here's Britt Frank. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Caderna Podcast. Britt, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, um, thank you for uh, coming here. Just the title of your book, when I see the science of stuck, I feel like no matter where you are in life or what you do, like we all end up there at one point or another. Um, you know, what What kind of gave you the the idea behind that title? Because I think it's it's like so good. And, and you know, they say never judge a book by its cover. But when you see that title, it's like, ah, we've all been there. <laughs> Thank you for that. So if I called the book, The Science of Trauma or The Science of Mental Health, that is so limiting because a lot of people don't realize that mental health is not just for a certain group of people. Like we all have brains. It's like fitness. It's like we all get stuck. We all struggle with not everyone has a drug addiction like I did or a severe mental health challenge like I did. But we all know what it's like to be stuck. I mean, who amongst us does not know the, I know I shouldn't be drinking that third glass of wine or watching that ninth YouTube video. Nevertheless, here I am. So it's the yeah. science of stuck because we all get stuck and there's science to explain why. Yeah. And it's interesting. So, I mean, is this something you ever thought you would do? Like you, when you were growing up as a kid, I know you mentioned a little bit there, like that you did have some addiction problems that you had to work through and such. Um, you know, did you always hope that someday you'd be on the opposite side of the table helping others or like when did when did that click? Like, you know what, I'm going to get into figuring out how our brain works. It's so funny. So I grew up on Long Island, which was a strange place for my brain to try to orient and acclimate to. I actually didn't get into this business to help people, which sounds really bad. It's like, wait, you're in the helping profession. Don't you want to help people? And it's like, no, I'm actually not that altruistic. I was in the corporate world. I worked in advertising and I was just so fascinated by what I learned doing my own therapy and learning about the brain and how our brain's brain, like everyone's different, obviously, but we all have the basic blueprints. And I just thought this was so cool. And all I wanted to do was read about, talk about, geek out about. And so I became a therapist more out of my own love of the work than my love of humanity. The fact that my work is helpful is a really fun bonus, but it wasn't yeah. the, uh, the incenting factor. <laughs> Got it. So it was almost kind of like it, it, driven, I don't want to say by like selfish intent, but you were trying to figure out yourself ultimately. Yeah. And selfish isn't always a bad thing, right? Selfish mm -hmm. is bad when you don't care about other people. I mean, it wasn't like, I'm going to be a therapist and step on everyone along the way. It was, mm -hmm. this work actually lights me up. And I think the world is served by people who are doing work that lights them up. Because generally speaking, if you're doing something that makes you feel like you, you're not going to be as big of an asshole as someone who is completely separated from their own sense of self. Yeah, that's a good point. And when do you think, like, as you hear so much about like mental health right now, and 
trying to figure out, you know, what, what triggers you, what calms you, you know, there's, there's just like this endless study that you can get into of figuring out your mind. Do you think there's a point where you can almost go too far? And, and it's almost like you get in your own head of like, you know, like a great example maybe is like, I'm, I'm a golf fan and you look at Tiger Woods when he was young and he came into the game at, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, he was lights out. And then everyone said, like, this is the, the greatest player, the greatest, like, body for golf that ever existed. And then he was always wanting to get better and better and better and tweaking this, tweaking that. And before you know it, it was like his swing, like, fell apart for a period of time. And it, that's what everyone said. It's almost like if it's not broke, don't fix it. It's same with, like, our mind. Can you go too far of, like, trying to figure out yourself when sometimes maybe you need to just kind of, like, let things be? <laughs> I think we're there. I think it is safe to say we have over-indexed. I, I appreciate that now people are talking about trauma and triggers and emotional intelligence and all of that. But we've gone from leave your problems at the door, just be stoic and grind to fully over-indexing on everything is feelings. And, you know, I do corporate keynotes. So in the business world, there's this trend towards managers need to be therapists and everyone should be in their feelings. And from a neuroscience perspective, that's not helpful and it's not necessary. So mm -hmm. I think we've both over-indexed on all this emotional feeling stuff, but the, the reality is that it's like driving a car. If you know how to drive a car, you don't need to obsess about how a car functions. Once you learn how to drive, you drive. And the yeah. brain is very much the same way, but none of us were given driver's ed. So everyone is studying the manual, trying to figure out, well, what do I feel and what do I think? And why do I do that? It's like, no, let's just get behind the wheel of the car. You don't yeah. need to be a mechanic to drive a car, but yeah. you need someone to show you. And the brain is the same way. And that's the work that I do. Gotcha. And and can you just kind of clue us into some of that work? Because like in your intro, you know, I mentioned you're a licensed neuropsychotherapist and a trauma expert in IFS mm -hmm. and SE, which is somatic experiencing. So yeah. someone on the outside that's like, I don't even know what these words are. Yeah. Um, it, can you give us kind of the cliff notes on like what some of that is and uh, what that means. <laughs> I, I used to work in marketing and advertising, and I wish people from that world would go to the therapy world and change these names because it's like somatic experiencing. What the all neuropsychotherapist means is that I am a therapist with training in how the brain works. Now, a lot of people don't know this, and this is kind of shocking. I was shocked and horrified to discover you can become a licensed psychotherapist, but never ever be required to learn how the brain works. Like, that is not a requirement. I know about the brain because neuropsychotherapy is a specific niche, but you can be a therapist and not know that you have a brain or how it works, which is something that's useful to know for people. Yeah, I would say so. And then like the somatic experiencing and internal family system. So is that yeah. kind of like a niche? I'm guessing that's kind of like family matters and disputes and things like that that you get into? No. And here's what's cool no. about it, because it's the, the language is off-putting, but it's incredibly relevant for every human. So all somatic experiencing means is that your brain is attached to a body. Like we don't walk around our lives in floating brains. Our body mm -hmm. has a nervous system and it does things just like a car. Like you don't mm -hmm. think your way out of an empty tank of gas. You go to the gas station. So somatic experiencing just recognizes that your body does things in reaction to the environment. And it's helpful to know what that is. IFS, internal family systems, isn't about your actual family. It's about okay. all the voices <laughs> in your head. Like we all have them, right? Voices that tell us like you need to power down your screen or voices that tell us you need to really show up at work. But no one talks about the fact that having multiple voices in your head is not a disorder. That's just how brains brain. And mm -hmm. IFS teaches people how to work with all those competing voices. I tell people, think of all the voices in your head like a company. So you've yeah. got like your work team that's fighting with your family team. So the parts of you that want to be at the kid's soccer game are in direct conflict with the parts of you that really want to show up and kick ass at work. And yeah. you, there's a way, there's a framework and a model for working with all the voices in your head. And that's what I'm trained in. Interesting. Yeah. And so can you kind of clue us into like some of if so if I was to sit down with you and you say, all right, you got all these different competing thoughts in your head from mm -hmm. kind of the family to the like you said, to work, to relaxing, to go get more sleep, you're not sleeping enough or don't sleep, you got more work to do and just all this kind of mayhem. Like what's what is maybe like the process that you would take a patient through to say, all right, we're going to help you kind of reach like that optimal state, you know, whatever that may be. 
um, you know, because I guess that's kind of the end goal is you're trying to figure out what's that patient's goal or, you know, kind of definition of happiness and get them there. Is that kind of the path that you lead them along? Yeah, you know, peak performance is a term that gets thrown around a lot. And it's really just for Mount Everest climbers or the Tiger Woods or the Michael Phelpses of the world. But really, mm -hmm. every human is in charge of their life. And peak performance is something that will look different for everybody, but is something that we all have available to us with the right training and the right coaching. So more so than I, I help people with their mental health, because I work with a lot of people that do not identify as having trauma or a mental health challenge. It's like, yeah. if you want to be optimized for peak human performance, you need to know how your, your gear works. Works. And so yeah. that's my goal with every person that comes in my office is I don't care what you're into. It's not my job to tell you how to live. It's what does peak performance look for you? Now, someone with severe depression, peak performance might be get out of bed and don't die. As a drug addict, early recovery peak performance was don't use crystal meth. But that shifts over time and we get to change the settings and change what we want and change the metrics. And so peak performance isn't a state we hit, it's a phase and we get to change it. And so when people come in, the first thing I start with is, guess what? Here's your brain. Here's how it works. All of the parts of you that you think are terrible actually have a function. It's like being the CEO of a company and you can't riff anyone. Like you're stuck with all of these voices. You can't fire them. If they were a sports team, you can't trade them. We have to learn how to optimize every part of yourself so they work together instead of fighting like, you know, wild animals or children without parents. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, great way to look at it. So like if if you did have someone like that, and even I don't mean the pride, but even if you want to share some of your personal experience, let's say you have somebody that does have that severe addiction, where do you start? Are you trying to pull them away from the addiction and distract them with exercise or a new hobby? Or are you trying to confront it head on and just say, like, I don't care what you do, but like, you're not doing X, you know, like, what is... Where does that begin? Maybe, you know, if only that works. Like yeah. addiction is a, a problem because you can't just stop. And as much as I could sit there with someone and chain them to their chair, there's a reason why addiction is a pro as big of a problem as it is. And so mm -hmm. the first thing, and I have had severe addictions, multiple different things. So it's helpful to know, and it's really important to start with. Again, this isn't about excusing suboptimal behavior. It's about we want to get better, which means we have to start with something better than you should just stop doing that. Addiction okay. is functional. It is not a sign of moral weakness or personal failure. It's functional. Addiction does a job. What is the job of addiction? To protect people from something they don't want to deal with, whether it's a trauma or a relationship that's not working or a life that they don't like. Um, and again, you don't have to have a severe mental illness to have an addiction. Lots of people do things to a degree that is not healthy for them. But we yeah. need to start with what is not why are you addicted? It's what job is your addiction doing? Do you hate your marriage? Do you hate your job? Are your finances a mess and you need to look at them? Did something happen when you were a kid? Like whatever, the, did someone die and you said you're fine, but here we are on your you know fifth bottle of Chardonnay of the day. So we have to start with what is the function of this behavior? Because all behavior is not acceptable, but all behavior is functional. And if you don't identify the function, you're not going to make a change sustainably. Okay. And then along those lines of addiction, like you often hear, oh, it's a, a disease. And and then that, it seems like there's these arguments about it, like, oh, stop with these BS excuses. And then like, it, sometimes me just saying that, like, I could be crucified, I get shamed, like, how dare you say something like that? Yeah. It is a disease, it's not their fault. And it's like, when you take these two different stances, it's like, well, how do you move forward when one is saying one thing and the other saying the other thing and, and they they're speaking as if it's just pure science that there's yeah. no if ands or buts about it can you comment on that on, on just kind of that thought yeah and there is an entire body of work that is hell-bent on saying addiction is a disease 
So, okay. Well, somebody with an addiction and as someone with a mental health challenge, I do not subscribe to the disease model. And I'll tell you a story and then you tell me. I put this in the book. Okay. When I worked as a therapist in inpatient rehab, I had a client and he grew up in small, like Midwestern town. He grew up with a happy family. There were no problems. There was no abuse. There was no trauma. He went to church every Sunday and he volunteered and was an Eagle Scout and played football. And then when he was in college, he tore his ACL and he was prescribed opiates. He was prescribed Vicodin. Now we know now, right? Hello, opiate crisis. Opiates yeah. are incredibly addicting. His doctor did not tell him that. So before he knew it, he had this incredibly high level opiate addiction and opiates are expensive and they're hard to get, but opiates are heroin and it's a lot cheaper to get heroin on the street. So here is this kid who never had any problem is now addicted to opiates, doesn't know what's happening to him, is too embarrassed or ashamed to tell anyone. Then mm -hmm. before you know it, he's doing heroin and then he ends up <laughs> in my office. Does that kid have a disease? Would you call it that? I, I really, I'm like, that's not a disease. That's an environmental situation that contributed sure. to his addiction. Doesn't mean it's okay. That's the other thing that drives me a little like bananas. Yeah. An explanation is not a synonym for an excuse. I can explain any behavior, but that doesn't mean it's okay. But addiction as a disease is so limited. Is addiction a disease in some cases for some people? Sure, humans are complex. But yeah. I have been in this world long enough that I can tell you my addiction wasn't a disease and neither was that kids. And yeah. neither is anybody who I've treated. If you look at them up close, their addictions do make sense in context. Again, it's yeah. an excuse, but yeah. I don't like the disease model because it takes away the reality of environment and stressors. And that kid was going to be a heroin addict if no one told him opiates are addicting and then like filled him up with them. Yeah. Right? And, and I'm in agreement with that. But I think where maybe a lot of people have this kind of debate is maybe not something so severe like like heroin. You know, I think most people would agree if you get into painkillers or what have you, and then you take that next step and you're to heroin, we know that that's like the most addicting substance in the world. Like whether you're, you know, Hulk Hogan or you're, you're just somebody with no backbone, everyone's going to get lured into it. And it's a dark, tough battle to get away from it. But what about something that's kind of more commonplace like alcoholism? where people say, you know, oh, I can go have a beer. And if I don't have a beer for another three weeks, I don't care. And then the next guy says, oh, I need 12 beers and I got to do it again tomorrow morning. But like, don't get mad at me because alcoholism is a disease. Is there any merit to that either? Or is that like a, a personality trait that <laughs> I, like, I just don't get it. I don't understand that really. Yeah, no, like, it, the, again, I have a disease. So don't blame me is that doesn't even make sense to me. even if it were like, let's I'll grant your premise. Let's say it's a disease. Yeah. It's not but let's just pretend that addiction is a disease. Okay, great. So does that mean that you have no responsibility to manage it using whatever resources and tools are available to you? It's like, we don't get to choose what ha like my genetics are all like, I got the full set of really dysfunctional genetics. I am primed for addiction, for bipolar, for schizophrenia. I have all of that stuff in my family, but mm -hmm. I didn't get to choose that. But I yeah. do get to choose what I do with what's available to me. And I don't have an a severe mental illness that plagues me all day, every day. Now I yeah. go to therapy and I take meds for the same reason I wear shoes. Like my brain works better when supported by certain medications, but okay. no, the disease, I, the disease thing is not an excuse. It's, and I know that guy, I was that guy The yeah. well, I just have a disease. It's not my fault. This idea that it's a disease is a way of bypassing the reality. Now the guy mm -hmm. that says that if you get him into therapy, eventually you're going to find out that more so than a dysfunctional relationship with a chemical, that guy mm -hmm. has a dysfunctional relationship with truth. It's like, yeah, bro, what's actually bugging you here? Like, mm -hmm. I've never seen someone with an addiction that did not have a pain point that did not need to be addressed. When you address the pain, the addiction <clears throat> is no longer as needed and then it goes away but someone who says i i have a disease i can't help it it's not my fault that is not the reality of how the human experience works so if i'm hearing you right it's like most addictions are a, a distraction from some sort of pain that they're hiding yeah. from or running from yeah okay
Why is and that so terrifying, maybe, right? Like, why is that so yeah. confronting? It's not that clutches at pearls. How dare you? But yeah. like, <laughs> it's not that deep. Yeah. Humaning is hard. Just because someone wasn't abused as a child doesn't mean there's not 5,000 other ways to get dinged up along the way. So yeah. like, why, why not just deal with it? Why don't we just talk about it? I get it. I mean, I was severely addicted to lots of things, but yeah. no, I don't subscribe to the, it's a disease, not my fault. Therefore you should just co-sign on my bullshit. Like, no. Yeah. Gotcha. So I appreciate you kind of being blunt about it. Cause I feel like a lot of people have to be kind of politically correct and dance around some of these issues. And then I feel like they never get fixed. Like we just kind of, we just say what we think is okay to get by and not piss anybody off. Um, but kind of in the same vein, maybe moving a step away from addiction, you know, like we said, mental health is, is the buzzword of all buzzwords right now. And it's, again, a, a very hot topic, a lot of debate where you could sit down and you have a classroom full of kids. And 20 years ago, everybody was quote unquote, fine. Nobody had a problem. Now you have the guidance counselor or the therapist or somebody come in and, oh, 12 of your 25 kids have severe mental issues and or emotional this and disorders and so many things it, maybe a little bit different than the addiction conversation but like at what how do you i guess how do they qualify all right this child has an emotional disorder that we're going to have to treat with therapy possibly medicate versus the child you say hey listen you know just uh cheer up kid and, and you know go hang out with your buddies and, and put down the video game controller and play basketball for an hour like, where do you draw that distinction? Because I know that that can be a very fine and gray line right there. Yeah. And you just described the two very extreme ends of the spectrum, right? Like mm -hmm. everything is a feeling and every trigger needs to be coddled is one extreme dysfunctional end. The, hey, kid, just buck up and go play with your friends and put a happy <laughs> face on is the other dysfunctional extreme ends of the thing. And yeah. again, the one of the big problems with this quote, mental health crisis with kids, and I started my career as a play therapist and I studied child development and I worked in schools and I worked in adolescent and young children inpatient psych hospitals with the most severe, severe cases. Mm -hmm. Again, we're not taught how the brain brains. If you don't know that you have a gas pedal and a brake pedal inside your brain, and if you know how to engage it, then life can work better. <clears throat> then we're not going to right now, sort of the, the wisdom of the land is if a kid is triggered, he needs to be coddled. Or if a kid is triggered, they need to be supported and brought into a safe space where they don't have to feel uncomfortable or whatever. But like human brains need to be challenged. They need to be uncomfortable, but in a skillful, safe, supportive way. A lot of parents do the best they can, but they don't know what that means. A lot of teachers yeah. do the best they can. Teachers now more so are being trained into what this actually means. But it's neither ignore nor coddle. There's a there's a middle path that is complicated and no one wants to take the time or the money to learn it. Not no one, I shouldn't say that. It's yeah. not as available to people. And, uh, but yeah, neither one of those is the thing. It's, hey, little Jimmy, here's how your brain works. And you are actually able to be in charge of it. There's nothing more powerful to a child. And I say this as the therapist of many, many hundreds of children, when they learn, I have agency. Wow. It's not just, I have a bad feeling. Someone fix me. It's, oh, wow. I have choices here. And whether you have a five-year-old who's been abused or a 35-year-old who can't put down the Zelda controller, knowing that you have choices allows your brain to do what your brain needs to do in order to execute those choices into actions, into changes, into more optimized living. The process is the same. It's you have choices, you have agency to whatever degree you have resources and access and safety. Like some people with no money and no access to help in a really impoverished environment with shootings every day, they don't have mm. a disease. They have a oppressive environment. Big difference. Yeah. And where do you think, like you maybe have your finger more on the pulse certainly than I do on this subject, but from the outside looking in, you, you turn on the news every night. If you sit on one end, is that like, oh, let's put you in this coddling bubble and protect you because you weren't smiling this morning. And on the other end, it's just like toughen up and get over whatever it is. Doesn't it seem that society is gravitating more towards the like, let's put every possible threat in a bubble? Yeah. And that's to our detriment. And again, I get why, you know, culturally, the pendulum tends to swing from one extreme, which is 
buck up cupcake and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and put on a happy face to, <laughs> oh my God, you're having a feeling. Now we have to figure out what you feel and what you think and why and what happened. It's like, sometimes it's just the pizza you ate the night before that's giving you an emotional hangover the next day. <laughs> but yes, we have, and again, the solution isn't to go to either extreme. The solution is to go to what are we missing? 60 million Americans are walking around with a mental health diagnosis. Like for reference, Taylor Swift would have to go on tour 10 more times this year to hit that number. There is something fundamentally wrong with what we're teaching when 60 million people are walking around with diagnoses that don't take the brain into account. Like I could diagnose you with bipolar and never ask you what happened to you as a child. Like it's the system as it is, is not so really ideal. How did, how does that change? Because it, it feels like I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I feel like these are hard conversations that need to be had, but it just seems like when we start to kind of bring up the, Hey, what if we bring it a little bit more back to center or why don't we find another alternative than just saying, you know, all right, let's dive in headfirst to that little child's feelings. It seems like as soon as you do that, you may get shamed. Like it's, it's a gamble. Like you're taking a risk to say, Hey, what if we look at the other side of this? And it seems like you, you, I mean, you could lose your job. I, I've seen, we go through so much training, even myself on how to be sensitive to all these different things. And you need to sit through the trainings. You need to pass these different tests. And I mean, you could have 10 people lined up next to me that are like, this is ridiculous. And they're clicking through the stuff. And, and it's like, it's just gotten so out of control. So it's like, where do we get back to center? How does that yeah. happen? And I get to say what I say, because this is what I'm trained in. And I get to be here telling you that you can be sensitive without being coddling, that you mm -hmm. can be skillful and supportive and create emotional safety without being enabling. So there's a way to do like validating a kid's feelings doesn't mean you're co-signing on it. So let's say a, a child is having a really big feeling and they're really dysregulated and like, you don't need to put them in a bubble. It's, Hey buddy, you're having a really big feeling right now. Hands are not for hitting. It's not okay to throw the things. And I see that you're having trouble. Let me teach you. And again, adults who don't know how to regulate their own emotional internal world are not going to be able to do it for children. But how mm -hmm. quick are we to blame the kids? It's like, I was not, I was raised in a very, very like stereotypically Jewish Long Island family where we yelled. Everything was a, like, even when we weren't mad, we just, you scream, you yell across the house. Like, that's just what we did moving yeah. to the Midwest. That was a bit of a culture shock, but it's sure. like, it doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries and discipline. It just means a, a really good coach can get a team to execute by being an asshole, but like a really, really good coach knows how to train and coach from a strengths perspective. And mm -hmm. the strengths perspective doesn't mean coddle. It just means it's a different framework to view behavior. And yeah. so it's not about coddle the kids. It's validate that whatever's going on, that kid is having a tough experience. But the job when parents used to like come to me and be like, what do I do to fix my kid? I'm like, well, how are you doing? Like your kid is watching you. Are you coming home from work and kicking the dog and throwing your shoes across the room? Then that's what they're going to learn. Like the, yeah. the best intervention for a, a kid who's having trouble is a caregiver who's emotionally fluent, which is gotcha. a tough get. It, it is. And I think that was kind of like a perfect segue into what I was going to ask you about is if you look at kind of the core of the issue, the, the problem, it seems like, and again, this is another touchy subject that's difficult to bring up, but that parenting may have something to do with it. And I think it, it seems like there's just so much tension out there right now where you have parents asking the teachers to do more asking the teachers to do better. The teacher's saying, this isn't our job. Like, I'm going to teach math. I'm not going to sit here and tell you not to fight every kid in the class or whatever it may be. And and there's just such this kind of like this battle here. And it's scary because then you think that those kids one day will be parents, obviously. So do you think kind of like the, the nuclear family and a lot of that framework is just different and that the mental health issues are just kind of like a symptom of how 
society is progressing in a certain way. So what I hear you asking me is, is this all the parents' faults? And I will say no. I will say this about parenting, and I don't have children. I've chosen consciously not to have them because mm -hmm. here's the thing. It's such a normal cultural thing. You just grow up and you have kids. But like parenting is really hard. It's sure. really hard. That's why I don't, I've chosen not to do it. And it's also why I had the time to study child development and sit with children for hundreds of hours learning how they human. But yeah. I don't think parents realize when they sign on for the job what they're signing on for. And I can tell you every parent that I've ever, ever treated in my office says the same two things. One, I love my kids. I would die for them. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them. I can't imagine my life without them. And if I knew then what I know now, I don't know if I would do it again. And again, it doesn't mean that they don't love their kids or that they've made a mistake. It's that Parenting is really hard. Raising a human is really, really tough. And yep. if you were not raised by really competent humans, how are you going to expect yourself to do different if you don't know any different? So, yeah. I mean, it's not about blaming the parents. It's just about if you're not taught, you don't know. And then you repeat what you what you learned. And yep. here we are. Clearly, it's not about blame. It's just like <clears throat> what we what we learned doesn't work. So, yeah, and, and hey, I didn't mean it at all in that sense of kind of like where <laughs> where do we point the blame? Is it on teachers? Is it on parents? Is it on social media? Yeah, I, it's just a, a thousand different factors out there. And I guess trying to figure out kind of, you know, how all these connect. And then maybe kind of the last thing in, that I wanted to ask in that that vein where I think it gets so touchy and it, to kind of take the other side of the argument of you can't just say, hey, toughen up or let's let's work our way through this is the what's just so scary and, and terrible to even think of is the rate of suicide mm -hmm. amongst adolescents is just unprecedented. And then you see these things like I remember growing up like one of the, the craziest moments out there. Of course, you had 9-11. And then the other huge one was Columbine and you heard it and it was like, it shocked the entire world. And now if you hear a shooting on a school campus, you know, in a college, in a classroom, it just, it's almost like you flip the channel and, and that we're, we've gotten like desensitized to some of this stuff is really weird and really scary. Um, but I think that's where the second we step away from let's identify every person's feelings and go after those feelings it almost does seem validated sometimes where you're like, well, what if we miss one single one and then that incident happens again? I understand that argument of like, we need to do everything humanly possible to avoid that. But then, of course, kind of protecting that one could jeopardize the other hundred along the way. Um, so I, I, and that's a, maybe a much bigger issue. But like, what are some of your thoughts or anything maybe you could speak to on that point? Oh, there's so many on-ramps I can get into there. So many places I could get into trouble with that one. I will say this, if we're talking about the suicide crisis, that talking about feelings is not what causes suicide. So a lot of parents are very concerned that if they ask their teenager or their child, are you thinking about hurting themselves, that somehow they'll implant the idea and they'll cause the suicide. That is not how that works. So. It is much better to be talking too much than not enough about the thing. So mm -hmm. with suicide, I mean, the one of the fastest ways to get on the suicide prevention train is to be willing to have scary conversations. When P And again, it's easier for me because they're not my kids and it's not my family. But when a client comes in and says I'm suicidal... I don't rush to, oh my God, how could you want to do that? That's terrible. That's selfish. You should live. And what about the people that love you? Like, that's not helpful. It's mm -hmm. wow. It sounds like you're in so much pain that it feels like death is the only way out. Let's talk about that. What's going on? And to, and again, it's, this is why therapists exist because this is a really impossible task for a parent, but we want to be able to get curious. No one comes to the, I want to die, or I'm going to do meth, or I'm going to whatever out of nowhere. It doesn't happen out of nowhere and it doesn't happen overnight. And so being willing to sit in the muck of uncomfortable conversations is important. And that's where feelings literacy does matter. And that's where being able not to encourage and coddle and enable the feelings, but to know what to do with them. When someone comes to me suicidal, at this point, now 10, 15 years in, I don't panic, but I used mm -hmm. to. But now I understand, oh, it's, it's not you. It's, there's a part of you. Like, again, this goes into there's parts and voices in our heads. Of mm -hmm. all of the different parts of your system, one of them thinks the only way out is death. 
So let's maybe come up with some other strategies and solutions so that death isn't the only option. So rather than why are you feeling this or what are all the feelings or let's enable all the feelings, I like getting back to choice power. It's okay, I hear you. This is what you're feeling. What are your choices? Death is an option. I don't like that option. I'm not going to support that option, but it is an option. I can't stop someone from doing that. But maybe if we can come up with five other other strategies, maybe that's a way that we can keep you from having to go to such an extreme. Like suicide is a very permanent solution to what is usually a temporary situation. So think of it again, it's taking business logic and applying it to these mental health challenges. Like let's do an inventory. Death is an option, but what else is on the table? And often suicidal people aren't able to see that they have multiple choices. And so let's create more choices. So we have more options. So death and addiction are not the go-tos. Got it. Got it. Interesting. And I guess looking at some of those options or those quote unquote go-tos, it seems like, um, and again, this is kind of my semi-educated opinion on the issue, but, or insight, it seems like lots of times it may be faith or it may be exercise, um, that I've seen a lot of people that have, at least that I've run into that have had an addiction or they did have dark depression that could have gone the wrong way, that outlet, they, they found God or they became very faithful or they became like an athletic nut where they were just in the gym like two hours a day or they're running marathons. It, it seems like those seem to be two very, very popular outlets when people have their backs against the wall. Um, is that true? Like, is that something in your kind of coaching or counseling or therapy or however you want to define it? Do you bring up those as those five other options or do people kind of just naturally gravitate towards either some big, powerful belief or towards just physical fitness? It's a really interesting point. And we know about the human body that physical fitness is not optional. Like we were not evolved to sit behind screens all day. Like mm -hmm. we have to move so that whether or not you're an addict, having a physical movement and a fitness practice is useful and not optional for, for people. To whatever degree you have the capacity to move, it's important that you do. Um, as far as like the addiction thing, now this is where it gets interesting. Now I'd much rather someone be addicted to running than crack, but yeah. if you switch one addiction for another and you don't identify the pain point that was causing the addiction, then you just switched one addiction. Now, again, running is a healthier outlet than meth. However, if you look at the real extreme sports community, you have a lot of people that are executing these incredible athletic feats, but they're not happy, they're depressed, or they're anxious. So what we want is not just behavior modification, even though that's useful. We want behavior modification, but we also want, again, understand what was this addiction's job? So you don't need to keep doing that job. I would much rather an ultra runner enjoy their life than just logging 200 miles and continuing to run. I don't encourage people towards anything. It's it's not you should try exercise or you should try praying or whatever. It's what is the pain point and then what are your choices? For some people mm -hmm. who are hardcore atheists, faith is not a choice that they mm -hmm. want. So like, okay, but like what is? What's going to give you a little bit of space so you can understand that your brain is on your side? All of these different parts of yourselves are trying. Our brains are not wired for happiness or health. Our brains are wired for survival. So mm -hmm. the safety team is what I call them the addict, the anxious parts, the overdoers, the people pleasers. Like, it doesn't mean the behaviors are okay, but that function is self protection. So, what is it protecting you from? And what are better choices? And then most people are can identify what choices make the most sense for them. And everyone's stack is going to look different. Like we're wired for connection, but I'm a really introverted person. So I don't need as much connection with people as an extrovert. I have yeah. my own stack of things that keep me feeling like myself. But yeah, faith is an option. Fitness yeah. is an option, but it's not the only one. Got it. And so maybe to kind of like put a bow on it, and I'm like trying to figure all this out as we go through it. So if you have somebody, maybe they had that traumatic event, and they've they've turned to addiction or, or they're getting depressed and they're they're choosing, you know, two of the bad five options, let's say that we're laying out there. Does it get to the point where you either say, hey, let's recognize the fact, you know, the way that you grew up or that incident that happened, embrace it. And now you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to choose these other better options to deal with it. 
or is it like, hey, this happened. Now today we're going to get over it, put it behind you, and now it's it's gone. You don't got to deal with it anymore. Like, what's typically the outcome? Is there one where like they go in either direction there? Yeah, and the, this this framework of you need to get over what happened to you is what keeps a lot of people stuck in addiction and depression because our mm. brains are not wired to get over things. It's like that's not how brains brain. Again, I didn't know this until I knew it, but think of your brain like your stomach. You don't need to get over things, but you need to digest them and you need to metabolize them. A lot of us are walking around with like, giant chunks of T-bone lodged in our esophagus. And we need to be able to break down these experiences, digest them and metabolize them. And that's the work that I do. So mm -hmm. it's helpful to know you don't have to get over what happened to you. You can't, like what happened to me happens. I can't get over it any more than I can get over needing to breathe. It's like, it, it happened. I can't unmake it happen. So yeah. the goal isn't to get over it. It's to metabolize it in my system where now it's a memory that's stored in the back of my head. It's not constantly pushing on me, causing me to be triggered all of the time and feel these things. People yeah. are very comforted by the science. It's like, you don't have to get over it. The reason you can't get over it is because you're not supposed to, but you can metabolize it. And here's how. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I appreciate you kind of sharing all that. And I know we spent some extra time maybe on the addiction mental health thing but i think it's it's just so important and it's kind of like a microcosm of or an exaggeration of what everybody's dealing with to some extent of kind of the good and the bad that goes on in their head um, yeah and i'll tell you and this is a bold statement and obviously this is not my disclaimer so i don't get angry dms when you air this not for <laughs> every single person in every single situation like we need to nuance this but yeah. generally speaking one of the biggest ways to help depression is grief. That sounds really backwards, but like the solution to depression is grief because what is depression? Depression is this, my system is totally locked down because if I come up out of this depression, there's going to be some things that are not changeable that things that I like after, you know, I'm a, I'm an assault survivor. So after my assault, my system went into a depression. Why? Because if I came out of that depression and felt all my feelings, I would have to feel all that crap that came along with feelings of powerlessness and helplessness. And, you know, where could I have done something differently? But the solution to depression isn't happiness. The solution to depression is being able to grieve without your system going like haywire with addiction. Mm -hmm one of the biggest solutions to addiction is truth. It's like, what is real here? What's the thing that you know, and whether or not you have a drug addiction, everyone has something that they know that they really wish wasn't true. It could be something that's true about themselves, about their family, about their life, about their choices. Whatever that little thing is that you wish wasn't true, but you know deep down is true, let's just deal with it. Cause then you don't need to outrun it. Anytime you don't need to outrun something, addiction becomes less necessary and less functional. When you're able to grieve something, depression becomes less functional and less necessary. And again, I'm not saying severe depression isn't real. It is real. I have it. I've had it my whole life. But being able to grieve without your system going into fight, flight, freeze is one of the fastest ways <clears throat> to address depression. But it's hard and it's a process and it takes time and skill. Got it. Thank you. No, that was great. And so to kind of move back to, to some of the study of your book, again, which is called The Science of Stuck, and it, it offers, you know, these different research-backed solutions, you know, on how to kind of reparent, you know, how to heal yourself, other clinical practices and things like that. Why do we get stuck, you know, in our lives or whatever the case may be? I think we've all been there. And, and it's crazy because I've even seen it like in my career where it's like the more and more success you have you get to certain points where it's just like, you're like, all right, I got it. Sometimes it can almost have like an empty feeling. I feel like when you hit that goal that you've worked for for so long and then you get there and it's like, all right, well now what? Like I did yeah. it and it like, it wasn't that great. And, and I've, <laughs> I, it, not to kind of like get on my soapbox too much, but I've been asked a lot about this. And there's a line from, if you ever saw the movie, cool runnings with the Jamaican bobsled team, and I'm paraphrasing here, but where the coach tells their captain, Derice, I believe was his name, he's, he gets asked, like, why did he cheat in the Olympics? And then the coach says to Derice, he says, Derice, let me tell you something. If you're nothing without a gold medal, you'll never be anything with it. And I always just kind of think of that. Of like, you put these things on a pedestal that you chase. And then when you get there, 
um, sometimes that's when people feel really stuck is once they mm -hmm. did the thing. So can you, and maybe that's just one instance, but can you share some of these, like why mentally people get stuck and then how they should deal with it? Yeah. And I work with, again, with really high functioning, high performing people who are in that exact situation. They have their millions, they have their title, they have all of the esteem in the world. And there's this like nagging emptiness. And that goes back to the, you know, and I'm a big like goal oriented, do the things, reach for the things person. But mm -hmm. if you're trying to solve an internal problem with an external solution, nothing is going to work. And that goes back to what's the thing that you know that you don't know. Like if your father was just like not the warmest, fuzziest guy, and you think if I get a gold medal, if I get $10 million, if I close the $100 million sale, maybe now he'll love me. It's like, well, that's never going to happen. It's like he didn't have it to give and now he's dead. And so it doesn't ever get to happen, but that's grief, right? I have to accept and grieve that there's certain things I want that I didn't get. I'm never going to get them. And then my accomplishments will never scratch that itch. But once you address that truth, then you're free to enjoy your accomplishments. And so, so there's that. So like it, accomplishments and the external can't solve an internal injury. So there's that. And okay. then your other question, why do we get stuck? And this is true for whatever your thing is, whether it's imposter syndrome or bedtime procrastination, or I won the lottery, now I'm depressed, whatever. We all want to ask these why questions. Well, why is this happening? And why am I like this? And I don't understand why. Like start with why is a great question when you're launching a business. But if a building is on fire, I'm not going to sit here and ponder why did this building catch on fire? And I wonder how I feel about the fire. It's like <laughs> the building is on fire. Get out. And so when you're stuck, don't ask why. Why is that great? Here's I can tell you why. It's my job to know your why. So here, great. That's why you're stuck. Now what? You're still stuck. Rather than start with why, I call these micro yeses. And this is the process that I teach. Like, forget about why right now, but what are three micro yeses that are available to you? Okay, what's a micro yes? A micro yes is, the, it's not even a baby step. It is the smallest possible thing that you can say yes to right now in the next 30 seconds. Not next week, not after you buy the gear, not after you have the special pens. It's like, what can you say yes to right now? Make a list of three of those things. Okay, of those three, what are you willing to do? Stuck turns into unstuck the second you're willing to say yes to anything at any degree at any pace. So the pace you start at isn't the pace you're going to stay at, but start by saying yes to something easy. That'll build the dopamine that you need to keep moving and say yes to the harder things. But the solution to being stuck is say yes to something. That's interesting. And it's it's funny. I'm laughing because there was a guy I worked with that he was like paranoid about setting up to do lists every morning. And then one of the top things he wrote on there was to set up a to do list. So it was like, as soon as he did that, he was checking the box. <laughs> and he's like, all right, I'm going like, I, I got my first check. And it's kind of like that. Yeah, I guess you, you build your momentum, you know, from scratch. Which is how brains work. But everyone says the same thing. Like a micro yes for someone who wants to work out. Who's like, I'm going to walk three miles after work. It's like, no, you're not like that's bullshit. But like, maybe you can put your sneakers by the door. And then your micro yes today is you walk up to the door, you put them on and then you go back to the couch and watch like whatever. But everyone's like, well, how am I supposed to get anywhere if I'm doing these dumb, little, stupid, tiny things? I'm like, that's how your brain brains. You're going to get a lot faster where you want to go by micro yesing rather than trying to take a step that's too big, getting brain indigestion and then getting mm -hmm. stuck and then you beat yourself up. So like micro yeses, that's how you digest whatever it is you want to do. Whatever your goal is, whether it's quitting drinking or starting a business or not blowing up at your kid, you have yeah. to do it micro yes by micro yes. But just to follow up on some of what you said. So I know you mentioned like you're doing these things, whether it's putting your sneakers on to go for a walk or you're starting that business or whatever those things are. Those are all external solutions, which you said the external solutions aren't going to get you there to the internal problem. Correct. But aren't they always tied together? Because I feel like if you cut out all the external solutions and say, okay, don't pay mind to those, look like within yourself. The only time you like truly do that is if you go all the way to becoming like a monk that is going <laughs> to sit at the top of the mountain and meditate from sunup to sundown. Yeah, maybe they control themselves, but externally, it's like, where's their impact or where's their action? Yeah. So isn't there kind of a... Uh, I guess, kind of like a give and take of kind of like within me, but then the world it, it, that yeah. I'm actually a part of. 
It's such a great question. And you're right. Like the external rewards don't solve the internal problem, but you have to understand how the pro I have a dear friend who's an ultra marathon runner and one that her name is Nicole Whiting and she's a coach. She's somatically trained. She's brilliant. And she always says, as far as running really long runs, you don't solve a mile 42 problem at mile one. So like, why am I feeling this? Let's get introspective is not a starting gate question. Like that is not a problem you want to deal with at this. Like if someone's quitting a drug or whatever, why do you feel the way you feel is not a good question when you're starting, when you're stuck on your couch and you're procrastinating your to-do list, not a good time to ask what's going on inside. The first five miles of whatever your thing is needs to be choices and action. Then once we get your brain out of lockdown and you've got some momentum, then at like mile nine, now we can go inside and figure out what's going on. But everyone wants to start with the inside work at the beginning and that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Or go, you know, like I am the monk on the mountain. I'm like, no, you need to get off the damn couch. Like, don't worry about what you're thinking and what you're feeling now, but we are going to get there once you get momentum. So we need momentum first, introspection yep. second. Got it. Got it. Interesting. And then kind of moving along this, <laughs> discovering thyself, if you will, <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about anxiety. So <laughs> it was something that and this this sounds very, very naive, but like I honestly, until I was probably 22 years old, I didn't even know really the word anxiety. I didn't know what it was. I didn't hear anyone ever really say it. And, and if you're like, oh, I heard anxious, but I never heard like, oh, I have anxiety. Now it's it's everywhere. If kids have friends over the house, it's like, oh, we got this. I'm dealing with so much anxiety. And I'm like, at 13, like what, like tell me like, so can you define what exactly is anxiety? It, it seems to be plaguing our country in particular. And um, how do you deal with it? So anxiety is so misunderstood and it's, it's used to mean lots of different things. Like I'm anxious about work. No, you're not. You're afraid that you're going to get fired. That's not anxiety. That's like you messed up at work and now you're afraid you're going to get fired. That's a fear. So we're so emotionally not fluent that we don't know that anxiety is not the same thing as fear. Anxiety is just the sense that something is going to go wrong, but we it's not tied to anything. It's like a free floating sense of something is going to go wrong, but I don't know what or where or whatever. If there's a specific thing it's tied to, that's fear. So like, okay, you're afraid of getting fired. Great. Now we can get into strategies. What are your choices? Can you, you know, can you offer to do this? Or can you have a conversation about that? If you get fired, can you talk to a headhunter or a recruiter? So what we want to do is take this idea. Anxiety is this thing that attacks us. All anxiety is, is your brain's gas pedal engaging because it thinks something bad is going to happen. Anxiety is like the smoke alarm of your brain. It doesn't attack you. It's just a sick, like if I took my car to the mechanic because my check engine light went on, the mechanic is not going to say, well, your check engine light is on. So clearly you have check engine light disorder, but that's what we do with anxiety. Anxiety is just the light. It's not the problem. It's a problem because it's not fun. I don't like it either, but like anxiety is an indicator light. It's not the problem. It's pointing to the problem. But all of us learned, oh, my check engine light is on. Therefore, I have check engine light disease. It's like, no, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what anxiety is in the brain and what its function is. Anxiety's function is self-protective. And it, do you think it's a word that's just thrown around too much that I hear anxiety from people that are on the, the brink of losing it. And then I hear anxiety from a kid that just doesn't want to go do their homework. It, it just seems like it's like another one of these buzzwords that um, everybody's adopted and it's like, it's okay to say it's a safe word. You can throw it out there as soon as you do like, all right, everybody step away. Like, let's give them a minute. It's, I don't know. It's just kind of, I think it's getting <laughs> I mean, like used in the wrong sense. <laughs> I mean, you can like the kid who doesn't want to do their homework. Like I'm not here to say that that kid, because of their family and their getting whatever, like maybe that kid is feeling anxious. So like, okay. But again, it's not an excuse. And that's mm -hmm. where I think I'm hearing you go. It's like, Oh, he's anxious. Therefore, like the check engine light is on. Just leave it on. Like, I, I don't know why I'm in all these car metaphors. I'm not a yeah. big car person, <laughs> they make but sense they work. Yeah. If my car runs out of gas 
and I'm sitting on the side of the road. I'm not going to say I have out of gas disease, nor am I going to say, well, I guess this is just the way it is. I have no gas. Therefore, the car just sucks. <laughs> it's like, get the car to the gas station and fill up the damn car. Like, I will help you push. If the kid is anxious, like, fine. Like, all right, kid, you're anxious. Tell me, where do you feel that in your body? Because anxiety is not in your mind. It's in your body. Okay, you're feeling a tight chest and your palms are really sweaty and you're muscles are really stiff and you feel like you're going to throw up. Okay, great. So like, what, what do you think your body needs from you right now? Does it need to move? Does it need to run? Does it need to push? Does it need to step away from the screen? Like if your body could talk, what would it, what would it say? What would it need? And then it goes right back to what are your choices? What are your micro yeses? And of those, what can you say yes to? Because that's yep. what helps dial down the, you know, you, the check engine light turns off once you address the problem. So does anxiety. Yep. Yeah. And it's, I feel like it's, there's varying degrees of anxiety that maybe we don't kind of dive as deep as the severity of it. And, and there's a, a good point to it too. It's, it's almost like I would imagine there's a part of that, that pushes you to, to go do the, you're either going to run away from it or you're going to go do that thing. And when, then when you do it, usually that relieves that anxiety or that worry when it's actually behind you, not just beside you. Um, so is that a, a motivator of sense? Like, should people be taught like, Hey, embrace it. Like, as soon as you get that anxious feeling, I, you know, I was taught when I was just getting started in my business and, and you're building this financial practice, I had a mentor and I'll use polite words here. He said, every single day in this business, you want to get to wussy junction and it should be this fork in the road where you're going to say, okay, I'm either giving up and going this way or I'm going head on and I'm going to do it. And he said, you should get there every single day. And if you do, that means that you're growing your practice, you're, you're going to the next level and every little hurdle that then you kind of overcome, your business is just going to get bigger and bigger and you're going to deal with higher quality, more exciting, successful people. And um, so I kind of saw that because it was early on, you know, you were afraid to make that call or you had this big meeting and it was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm ready. Like, this, I haven't done this before. I haven't had this conversation before. And it, like, I always remembered him saying that like, okay, well, it's a good thing. Now I know I'm in the right meeting or I'm about to make the right call because I'm having that, that nervous feeling, those butterflies. So shouldn't we also teach that too? Like, yeah, you had a very, very wise mentor because this expectation that we're supposed to feel safe and comfortable in every situation is doing us all in. Like if you think about how do you build muscle strength, right? If you go to the gym, you know you're going to be sore because we all know that in order to grow muscles, you have to tear the fibers so they repair and grow stronger. Mm -hmm. No one bats an eye when they're doing leg day and their legs are on fire and they feel like crap because we know that's the process. But if you're sitting in front of your phone oh my God, I can't make this call or about to lead a meeting that you feel like you have no business being in. We have this expectation that we're supposed to feel good and we're supposed to feel empowered and we're supposed to feel motivated. It's like, you don't need to feel anything. You're supposed to feel crappy when you grow. That's how growth works. Like if you look at nature, fertilizer is in fact like it's shit and that's how things grow. Muscles grow from being torn. So why do we think personal growth should be the sunshine and ponies and daisies process where we feel good all the time? So mm -hmm. part of it is the expectation that making good decisions feels terrible. So that's important to remember. And then second is if you're trying to do something too big, too fast, again, remember you have a, a brake pedal in your brain. So if you're sitting in front of your phone and you are locked down and you're biologically stuck in a freeze, like fight, flight or freeze, you, you can sit there and yell at yourself. But if you can't make that call, fine. Maybe your micro yes is you dial the number, but you don't hit call. Maybe your micro yes is you stand up with your phone and give yourself a pep talk. But if you can't do the thing you want to do, break it down into smaller bite-sized pieces. Mm -hmm. And again, find your way to a yes. Your brain changes when you say yes to things. So if yep. you can't do your thing, find a smaller version of your thing and then do that and keep going. And that's how gotcha. you do it. Yep. I'm seeing micro yeses is, is often yeah. a solution here, which is pretty it, cool. It, it's annoying how stupidly, like, I'm like, I spent how many hundreds of thousands of dollars in therapy and graduate school just to do things on a microscopic yes basis and you'll get where you want to go. It's like, yeah, it is that stupid and it is that simple, unfortunately. <laughs> that's, that's awesome, though, that we could all do it. 
so maybe two two things I want to wrap up here with because there, there's so many different kind of rabbit holes I could dive down here of kind of thinking about how we think. So I want to ask you about routine. Like I've mm-hmm. I've had periods of my career over the past 15 years where I feel like having a daily routine has been a godsend and it simplifies things. I just show up, I get to the office and I do X, Y, and Z. And my day is almost like on autopilot where I'm like this machine within it. And then when COVID happened and I pivoted from really working in an office to doing much more remote work, my routine completely changed and I became more spontaneous. And and I saw pros and cons to the fixed routine and pros and cons to kind of the spontaneity. Um, For just the, the average Joe out there, no matter what occupation they're in, do you have comments one way or the other? Should there be a blend of the two? Is one better than the other one as far as kind of a lifestyle? As far as spontaneity versus routine? Yes. So if your life is working for you and you're spontaneous and you don't have a problem with that, then like, I'm not here to tell you, you you have to have routine, but if your life is not working in the, to the, you know, to the level that you want it to be, if you're not in your version of peak performance, I will say that our brains like routine, our brains more than anything are pattern seeking machines and autopilot is important because we have so many things coming at us all day that if you can automate your good habits, then you don't have to think about them. Like if you can audit, just like you wake up and brush your teeth, if you can automate fitness, if you can automate taking a few deep breaths, if you can automate like how these good habits are baked in. James Clear calls it habit stacking. He wrote Atomic Habits. Like if you can automate all the good stuff that you want to do, then you don't have to think about it and you don't have to fight with yourself and all the voices in your head aren't going to argue with each other. So I'm a big advocate of your brain brains on patterns. So create the patterns that are going to set you up for success. Now, if your life is not working, then we probably want to look at your routines, assess them, especially with the switch to hybrid and work from home. Your brain doesn't know anymore when you're at work or when you're home because Mm -hmm. you're just like home all the time. So that's a terrible thing to get your brain accustomed to because it doesn't know how to shift. So working in different clothes, working in a different room, working in a different environment where there's a clear line between work and home will help your brain downshift out of like work state into home state because our brains do need to shift. And it's not, again, the car metaphor. Our brains are not automatic. You can't just like pump the brakes and slow down. You know, Mm -hmm. you need to like shift up and down. The reason Friday afternoon, everyone freaks out is because you've been in fifth gear going 90 miles an hour. And now you expect yourself to be in first gear going 20 and just chilling. It doesn't work like that. We have to shift and routines are a way that we can shift. Got it. Thank you. That was, that was very interesting. And maybe to wrap up here. um, One of the things when I came out with my book this year, it's called, what should I do with my money? I talk about wealth, it not as just in the monetary sense. You know, I look at the the old English, the etymology is the old English word wheel, which just means well-being. And so everything I do, I always try and talk about well-being, you know, looking at the whole context. And so I, I will give credit to the CIA actually came up with this idea of kind of these human motivators that we have that they call chasing the mice, which is money, ideology, compromise and ego. So when I started writing my book, that was kind of the the angle. I, I looked at every economic issue from those four lenses of what's the monetary impact, the ideology motivator, compromise, and then ego. So I always like when I have different professionals here on the show to kind of get their take on those four triggers, those four motivators, whatever you want to call them, what they mean to you. So if you don't mind sharing you know, with us and, and all of our viewers and listeners, Can you tell us first off, you know, what does money mean in your life? Oh, that's such a great question. I love that mice thing. That's cool. I hadn't heard of that. (laughs) So, you know, the way I see it, and I'm not a financial expert, but I use money because that's, we live in a place where it's important. Money is energy, right? It's a vehicle. It's a tool. It's not inherently evil. It's not inherently good. It's fuel like fire, right? Fire can be used to cook your food and warm your house and make you feel cozy or a fire can burn your life down. And so we all have these very, very strong ingrained scripts and stories about money that are very largely unconsciously informing our decisions. Like my financial advisor told me, he's, I interviewed him for my book, my second book. And he's like, you know, 
Financial decisions require the most logic, but most people make financial decisions from the most emotional part of their brain. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that your brain is not just logic, but you have, again, like the parts of yourself, you have a team that's responsible for logic and you have a team responsible for emotional feelings and all that stuff. When you're making money decisions, it's helpful to sit down and ask yourself, which parts of myself have a story about this decision? If I'm buying a house, which makes no financial sense for me, is it because my feelings parts feel like having a house means I've made it and then maybe I'll be accepted by my peers or whatever. But I think that money is a reflection for how, again, I'm not talking about people who are in oppression or poverty or in a system. I'm talking about people who generally have the ability to meet their basic needs. Your mm -hmm. money is a reflection of your internal beliefs, feelings, your scripts. And when you make all those things conscious, then you can choose instead of just defaulting. Like I don't default to how I was raised about money because those ingrained beliefs don't serve me. So I had to do some work on what did I learn and what did I see from my father and what did I see from my mother? And do I choose again, back to choice, is this choice working for me or do I need to maybe come up with something different? So yeah. money is not this neutral thing inside of us it is neutral until we attach our stories to it so it's helpful if you're going to change your money stories to know what they are got it perfect so that's m that's money and then for i ideology what would be your ideology or your your principle your guiding belief your north star however you want to call that uh truth over everything else there's a quote i love by m scott peck and he said mental health is a commitment to reality at all costs so anytime we deviate from what we know is true we're going to run into problems so truth trumps everything awesome and then see compromise can you tell us where compromise you know plays a role in your life what you're willing to give up what you're not willing to give up I think having your values, like knowing how you personally stack your values and my personal value stack won't be the same as yours, but I need to know what my values are. So I can, like one of my highest values in my career is independence. Like I, I love people, but I don't like working on a team. I like collaborating with other people's teams, but I don't want to ever have to manage anyone. I don't want people reporting to me. And so when someone presents me with a business opportunity, I need to know that my highest value is independence. Otherwise I'll say yes to things, even if they seem good on paper that aren't gonna work and are gonna be incredibly high conflict. So I need to know what I value in order to inform my decisions. Got it. And then the last one, E for ego. What is your ego and how do you control your ego? That is a question. So God, like, what is, do you mean like, what is ego in general? Or like, what does the voice of my ego say? Yeah, or? to you, like, if, if you don't mind, like, what role does that play in your life of placating your own ego? Yeah. So there's all of these like meta frameworks about killing your ego and you need to like destroy your ego. It's like your ego is just a team of parts that are worried about cultural norms and acceptance and belonging. And if your ego runs the show, your life's not going to work, but we do need our ego. Like when I showed up for this podcast, my ego is like, oh, this is like a, a financial podcast. So maybe don't wear a baseball hat and like, you know, look like crap and whatever, like maybe look more professional. That's, that's an ego decision and it's not a bad one. Our ego needs to be a, an, a consultant and an advisor in our life, not the CEO or the people making the choices. Ego is important as a voice, not good as a driver. Got it. I think that was perfect. Yeah, as a consultant, not the CEO. And that's why it is just one letter that makes up mice. So. <laughs> this was great, Britt. You gave us, I think, so much to chew on here. There's so much more I could ask you about, but that's where uh, I would just turn people towards your new book. Again, The Science of Stuck. Go check it out. And uh, thank you for the time. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me on. Yep. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna Podcast. Please leave us a review wherever it is that you're watching or listening. Go tell a friend and spread the good word, and we will see you next time.
This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.